Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're glad you joined us today, and we're glad you joined in for our study of the book of Revelation. We pray that it blesses you and encourages you, that it puts the fight back into your soul. If you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out, newriverchurch.org. The other, the other night, my wife and I, I was giving my wife a hug, and you know, it's nice, hugs are nice, they're great, and she uh she pulls, you know, hug, and then she pulls away and scrunches her nose, and she says, how many days have you worn that T-shirt? You know? Come on, guys. Any married man ever got that? You know, you know we have. Okay. So, listen, I'll, a little, little context. I'm one of those people, I don't mind wearing the same outfit days in a row. I mean, the, the truth is, these jeans are fresh this morning. I'll still have them on Friday, right? You want to stay upwind a little bit, but you know what? They look clean. It's fine. But you know, the part of the, but the issue is this, like, I couldn't smell my shirt. You know, there's times where I can. There, there's times where I smell myself and I know it's bad. But there's a lot of times that it's a clean shirt. It's only like two days old. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with it. And I can't smell it. And it's this goofy little way to start, but I want to start with this. It's a harder question. It leads to a more difficult, challenging question, and that's, and that's this. Is it possible that you stink like the world, and it's ruining your love life with God, and you don't even know it? Is it possible that, that you try to draw close to the Lord, and the Lord's like, man, See? Is it possible that, that your habits, beliefs, attitudes, patterns of behavior, patterns of thinking are worldly and that they grieve the Holy Spirit of God and they actually create a distance between you and God? Is it possible? And what do you do when God, in his loving and gentle way, says, how, how, how long have you been wearing that shirt? When God does that, because he does. He does that in relationship with us. How do I respond? In the Bible, there was a man named Lot, and Lot was the nephew of Abram, and he made his home in the city of Sodom. And the story is found in Genesis chapter 19. You can look it up later and keep me honest, if you will. But the story goes like this. Lot was living in the city of Sodom, and if if you're not a Bible scholar, you can put two and two together. Uh, Sodom is, comes, well, the practice of sodomy comes from Sodom. So Sodom is this ancient city equated with wickedness and all things nasty. It's just the epitome of all things bad. And Lot is living there. And God is determined to judge this city and to destroy it and literally wipe it off the face of the earth. But the problem is Lot lives there. And Lot is a righteous man. Second Peter tells us that. Actually calls Lot a righteous man. He's one of God's guys. So how does God destroy the city of Sodom but spare Lot? Well, he sent two angels to go and warn Lot about the impending doom and to get Lot and his family out of Dodge before he destroys the city. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Lot and his wife and his family did not want to leave Sodom. In fact, they were so attached to Sodom that Lot's wife was killed. She was destroyed in the, in the destruction. She turned back and was ruined, was destroyed. 
So you say, how could this be? How could it be that if Sodom's so wicked and Lot is so righteous, why would he want to stay there? It's a good question for you and me, man, woman of God. Because how is it that we can grow so comfortable here that we don't want to leave here? Do you see how attached you are to here? My prayer this morning is that actually God opens our eyes to that because we're more attached than we might think we are. We see times getting darker around us. We see that, and you would think that as times get darker, the people of God would shine brighter, but let's be honest. Is that really happening? I mean, it seems like instead... When times grow darker, God's people compromise more. We tend to compromise with the world and stiff-arm God. And listen, there's no judgment here. Please, I'm not casting any stones. I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I don't want to make waves. I like to be liked just as much as the next person does. So I'm totally in this boat with you, okay? But I think we need to seriously deal with this issue that if we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to make us different. And it might even sometimes make us hated. So you say, what does the story of Lot have to do with our study of Revelation? I tell us that because it's actually the backdrop. For Revelation chapter 17 and 18. It's, it's behind it. So today we look at God's, uh, last week we looked at God's judgment on false religion. This morning we look at God's judgment on human government and its system of oppression and greed and immorality and injustice and all that stuff. And as we read about God's judgment on the world system, we have to ask ourselves this question. Have I grown too comfortable in this system? Am I like Lot, where I am in Sodom, I see the wickedness around me, but yet I don't want to leave it? I'm comfortable here. Am I numb to the rampant immorality that has become mainstream in our culture? Am I easily swayed by mob justice? quick to just jump on the latest bandwagon and post the same crap as everyone else on my social feeds? Like, is that me? Am I, is my heart moved with compassion because God's heart is moved with compassion? Or is my heart moved with compassion because that's the latest thing culture's lathered up over? See? When was the last time you were actually moved by Scripture rather than being manipulated by the media? Shouldn't the people of God be moved by Scripture? And that means we're moving in His direction, regardless of what cultures, what they're heated up over. We march to the tune of a different drummer, do we not? And so here's a little friendly warning this morning, okay? And that's this. John does not use very nice words when he's talking about the prevailing culture and the world and its influence. So, heads up. Revelation chapter 17, and we're going to really read through it fast again so that we get the feel for the whole thing. Uh, we've been doing this each Sunday, but we just have to get the context. So chapter 17 opens up with this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I'll show you the punishment 
of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with the abominable things and with the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. That's quite a name, isn't it? I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns, the beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because it, was, it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings, and he goes through these different kings. Verse 11, the beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. <clears throat> and they're going to wage war against the lamb. This is verse 14. But the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the king's of the earth. So you almost see like this, they, they feed on each other, they turn on each other, don't they? They start destroying each other. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. And then we come down, there's threefold woe over her fall. Verse 9, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn, terrified at her torment. 
They will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore, cargoes of gold and silver and all those great things. But the emphasis down in verse 13, look at the cargo they're selling. Human beings sold as slaves. Then verse 14, they will say the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered and then they will also cry, woe, verse 16. Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. So you have the kings of earth mourning her loss, the merchants of earth mourning her loss, and then lastly, verse 17, every sea captain, and all who travel by ship, the sailors, and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. They will see the smoke of her burning. Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. And then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. And you notice music stops, work stops, Shops get closed up, everything stops because Babylon is gone, wiped out. All right, what do we make of this? Let's break it down. So John introduces us to this mother of prostitutes named Babylon the Great. And she's quite a character, isn't she? She is uh, decked out, gaudy clothing, glittery jewels. She's drunk on blood. She holds a cup with abom abominable things in it, a cup with the filth of her adulteries. Uh, she knows how to give the kings, the powerful people, the merchants a really good time, doesn't she? Oh, they have a great time with her for a while. But not just kings. It seems that everybody is captivated by this woman, aren't they? Everybody is. They're just entranced by her, even John. If you look at chapter 17, verse 6, John says, when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. You see that? that if you, your Bible might have a different translation, the word astonished there is interesting. If you have the King James Version, it says, I marveled with great admiration. The NLT, the New Living Translation, says, I stared at her in complete amazement. Stared at her. Couldn't get enough. Uh, the, the English Standard Version, I marveled greatly. It says. So in other words, this woman, Babylon the Great, she is fine. She's a head turner. She's a 10. She's a, like a 12 out of a 10. I mean, she is knock your socks off, a knockout, this woman. And she's so attractive that even John is caught up by her. He's staring at her like, whoa. So much so that in verse 8, the angel has to say, 
you know, why? He's almost covering, it doesn't say it in the text, but I imagine he's like covering John's eyes. You know, hey, don't look, stop. Because she's drawing John's attention. Listen, if you don't think that Babylon doesn't appeal to you, you're lying to yourself. She is attractive. She catches your eye. Every single day she turns your head. And she will suck you in, and she will drain you dry. She will steal your soul. She will ruin your life. You're lying to yourself if you don't think that this culture doesn't have a grip on you in some sort. And you're robbing yourself if you're not actively and aggressively resisting all of the influences of this culture in your life. You can be guaranteed each and every day this culture is stealing from you. Little by luscious little, numbing you, lulling you, rocking you to sleep. Many people will wake up in hell one day and say, whoa, how did this happen? How did I get here? I'm a good person. Without ever seeing all the ways that they've compromised with the evil of this culture and this world. Little by little, every single day of their lives. She is attractive. She is attractive. Now listen, the rest of chapter 17, John explains who this woman is. And by his description, there's no doubt he's talking about Rome. John's first readers would have easily associated this with Rome. Um, not the present-day city of Rome, of course, but Rome, like the center of that Roman Empire that was so dominant when John lived. You look in verse 9 of chapter 17, he refers to seven hills. Uh, that was a reference clearly to Rome. Rome was known as the city on seven hills. All of John's readers would have immediately associated it with Rome. And then you notice three times he uh, talks about this one who, this little king, who was, is not, and is yet to come. Notice three times we read it, three times. That's a reference to Emperor Nero, who many people w believed at this point. You know, Nero was dead by then, and that many people believed that Nero would rise again to rule again. It was one of the many conspiracies that people talked about around the Roman Empire. We, we don't have any of those in our culture, do we? Yeah, we don't have, no, nah, nah, none of that, right. So, so yeah, we'll just move on. That doesn't apply to us. But anyway, so they all, in other words, so these, his first readers would have easily associated this with Rome, and, they see, and John sees Nero coming up from where? Do you see that? It's interesting. Out of the abyss. So that tells you what he thought of Nero. <clears throat> um, not so great. But now, if you're looking at Revelation and you're studying this from a historical perspective, you would look at this and you'd say, well, great, he's talking about Rome. Doesn't apply to me. Perfect. Move on. Except this. <clears throat> Remember, Revelation is also a, not just a historical document, it's a prophetic document, right? Meaning God is saying something. God's speaking, and there's a word for these people, and God has a word for you and me as well from this. The same word, I believe. God's word doesn't change. Same word for them as it is to you and me, and this is wrapped up in this image of Babylon. That's what makes Babylon so important, because, um, because Babylon was one of the oldest 
continuous cities in the ancient world. It no longer exists. You and I can't go there today. Well, you can. You can visit the ruins. They're in Iraq, um, which might be a problem right now, but you know, you could at some point go. <clears throat> so it's no longer here. But thousands of years ago, Babylon was the place to be. The first time that we're introduced to Babylon, we meet it in Genesis chapter 11, where people come together on the plain of Shinar to build a tower. We call it the Tower of Babel. And the point of this tower is to reach all the way to God in their own strength. That was the idea behind the Tower of Babel. In fact, the name Babel, Babylon, it literally means gateway to the gods. So here these, it's Babylon has come to represent, then you see, the summit of human achievement. Babylon represents what we can do without God. It represents our attempts as humanity to become great apart from God. And through the years, Babylon served as headquarters for numerous empires. In the ancient world, Babylon was synonymous with power, wealth, prestige, prowess, and all of the self-centered backstabbing that goes with it. It symbolizes our obsession with wealth and with power, with, which serve as cheap substitutes for God. Have you noticed how much of our lives are driven by a thirst for wealth and power? Oh, man. <clears throat> I mean, take a look at the magazines on the rack in the grocery store. You're ch waiting to check out in line. Every headline has something to do with wealth and power, whether it celebrates those who have it or it gives you five steps to attain it. It comes down to wealth and power. And the two seem to feed off each other in some sort of sick, incestuous relationship, don't they? The, the promise is, if you're wealthy, you'll be powerful. And if you're powerful, you'll have wealth. They, they go together. And so everybody wants it. And Babylon represents those systems that we've designed to attain and keep wealth and power. That's what Babylon represents. The systems. You understand these systems have proven to be oppressive throughout human history. You realize that. This is why it's so foolish, right? It's so foolish to criticize, like, I'll just call it. It's foolish to criticize capitalism and somehow think that socialism is the answer, okay? They're both broken. Neither one of them is, like, the answer, See, it, it's foolish, it's ignorant to complain about like the 1%. Every system has 1%. Every system has 1%. Okay, listen, the answer that we're looking for is not found in another governmental system or more laws. Like, that's not the answer. The answer that we're looking for is not found in a revolution. It's not found in, in marching down Washington. The answer is found when we humble our own sick selves before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can rule us without ruining us. Everything else is Babylon. And we're just attempting to redress Babylon, make it look better, somehow fix Babylon. You know, we're always propping up Babylon. Stop propping it up. 
T.F. Torrance, in his book, uh, The Apocalypse Today, he writes this. I thought this was an interesting quote. He says, Babylon is, in fact, an imitation kingdom of God based on the demonic trinity. Ostensibly, Babylon is a worldwide civilization and culture, magnificent inner science and arts and commerce, but is drugged with pride and intoxicated with its enormous success. Babylon is the worship of this world, the deification of economic power and worldly security. There is no doubt but that our world is in the grip of this wicked Babylon today. Babylon represents human collectivity, also known as globalism, or, quote, the new world order. Be wary, my friends, when you see politicians and leaders talk about the new world order. It's just putting more lipstick on Babylon. Last week, we looked at chapters 15 and 16, where God brings judgment against false religion. And we learned there he uses the image of bowls, you know, the seven bowls of wrath that God poured out. And he used that image because bowls were a common image in ancient temples. So they associated it with religion. So today, we see God coming against human government. He's bringing final judgment against that first beast, human government, and he uses Babylon as a picture because Babylon is fitting. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, um, <clears throat> doesn't all human government boil down to wealth, power, oppression, right? So Babylon, the great whore, is a graphic picture of what happens when people sell their souls to the gods of money and power to build systems of government to pass laws that justify their actions. Let me read that statement again. So Babylon the Great Whore is a graphic picture of what happens when people sell their souls to the gods of money and power to build systems of government to pass laws that justify their actions. That's Babylon. And in chapter 18, we discover how God feels about it all. The person in verse 1, chapter 18, verse 1, is probably Jesus himself. He has great authority, it says. He lights up the world. He has a mighty voice. And he shouts the fall of Babylon, doesn't he? Fallen, fallen, it says. Why will God bring Babylon down? Verse 3 says, because the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. This, this prostitute Babylon has had a negative influence on the whole world. She's enticed everybody with her promises of wealth and power, and she's distracted people from God. Therefore, she has got to go. Jesus pronounces judgment against her. Fallen, fallen. Your day has come. But before Jesus brings judgment, what does he do? Look at verses 4 and 5. He turns his attention to his people. And look at he says, Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. So he pronounces judgment on Babylon, and then he urges his people to come out of her, he says. This is where the story of Lot we began with this morning, this is where that story is central to this whole 
idea here this morning, this section of Revelation. God's bringing judgment on the world. He's determined to do it, just like he did to Sodom all those years ago. And even Sodom, remember, was ruined in one moment. The fire came down, city destroyed instantaneously. Babylon will be, restored, be destroyed the same way, won't it? Three times we read it, in one hour her doom has come. In one hour. Remember that got repeated? The merchants, the kings, the sea captains all said, in one hour. So her destruction is certain, and it will be quick. And before it happens, God comes to his people, to you and me, and he says, come out of her. Come out of her, my people. He's urging us like he did with Lot, taking us by the hand, drawing us out. But I wonder, if Jesus came back today, how many of us would respond like Lot did with those two angels? Hey, you know, Lord, this is really not a great time. You know, I mean, I'm about to finish my Ph.D., and, jeez, I'd really like to get that degree, you know? Lord, you know, I, I'd love to become a grandparent before you come back. I'd love to get married before you come back. You know, Lord, I'm about to get that raise. It's just it's really not a great time for you to come back. Dang it, I hate it when Jesus comes back at bad times, right? I wonder how many of us would feel that way. How many of us would respond to the coming of Christ the way that Lot responded? Hemming and hawing and hesitating and hanging on. Come on. You know, the truth is, man, John, just like John stared at that prostitute and the angel had to pull him away, we also gawk at Babylon, don't we? We want their yachts, we want their cars, their mansions, we read their posts, we follow their feeds, we talk about their paychecks, we envy their paychecks, actually. We buy clothes with their names on the label. We would never admit it, but we secretly wish we could be them. It's why their lifestyle fascinates us so much. You know, they don't ever do magazine cover stories about the homeless guy under the bridge, do they? It's not lifestyles of the homeless and hungry. It's lifestyles of the rich and famous, right? There's nothing about that life that's attractive to us. There's a, there's a reason why the glitz and the glamour sells. We all want it. Even God's people want it. So let's stop lying to ourselves, friends. Why not just face it and be honest with ourselves and then humbly confess it and repent from it? Oh, Lord, forgive me because I've become too attached to Babylon. And Jesus, if you were to come back today, I think I actually might hope you'd come back later because I'm having a good time right now, God. Let's just be honest with it. See? Or <clears throat> as 18 comes to a close, there's three different ways that, actually there's four different responses to Babylon's fall. And I would hope that none of us would respond this way, but I got a feeling many of us would. But I call it this way. I call it three woes and a splash. So you got three woes and a splash as chapter 18 comes to an end. First, you have the kings of the world, and they cry woe, don't they? Woe, woe, you've fallen in one hour, your doom has come. And then the, third, the second woe comes from the merchants. They, they mourn. You know, the, 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 the guys that are making their fortunes off of Babylon, they mourn. Woe, 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 in one hour, your wealth is Whoa! And then the sea captains mourn. I think the sea captains, they're like the ancient truckers, 
right? I mean, because they were the guys in the ancient world that moved all the goods around the world. So they, they made their money by moving the goods, right? And so kind of the sea captains, the, the truckers, if you will, they, they're all like, whoa, 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 whoa. Everything's over. In one hour, it's done. Interestingly, though, it's the sea captains, it's the truckers of the ancient world who understood something that the others missed. Do you look at verse 20? They acknowledge, the, the truckers acknowledge that God has judged Babylon because of the way she treated the people of God. Do you see that in chapter 18, verse 20? It says, uh, it says <clears throat> rejoice over her, you heavens. This is the sea, the sea captain speaking. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. One version, the old NIV says, God has judged her for the way she treated you. It's interesting that the sea captains are mourning the loss of Babylon, and then they turn to the people of God, and they tell you, they tell the people of God, rejoice over her because basically you're being vindicated. The people of God are being vindicated because you chose to align yourself with Jesus and not with Babylon. And now that Babylon is dead, the sea captains look at you and say, rejoice. I see that you have won. You know, you, you, you are standing victorious at the end of the day when the dust is settling. Isn't that cool? In a sense, I think it's neat. Do you see where God's allegiance is focused? God's allegiance is focused on his people, not on Babylon. God doesn't care about Babylon. His passion, his concern, his, his desire is for his people, to defend his people, to deliver his people. That's the passion of God for you if you are a man or woman of God. God has aligned himself with you, and you are the one that makes his heart beat fast. Psalms 111 verse 7 says that God takes delight in those who fear him and those who place their hope in his unfailing love. Song of songs, God is portrayed as the lover, and we are portrayed as his bride. And he says to us, come away, come away, my darling. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You've stolen my heart. This is the great passion that God has for his people. Whoa, isn't that great? The good woe, not the bad woe. The woe, W-O-A-H. I just said that. I realized, wow. So a good woe. I wonder, right, if we could just get a hold of this, how much it would change our lives. Do you see the passion that God has for you? If you are his child, once you do, you'll never want Babylon again. Babylon is so empty. It's just ridiculous. It's foolish when you see it in light of what you have in God. So Babylon's destruction is depicted at the end of chapter 18. The last scene is this big splash. This mighty angel takes Babylon like it's a giant boulder and he throws it into the sea. And it just sinks like a rock, because it is literally to the bottom, never to be heard from again. The music of Babylon stops. The workmen building Babylon never heard from again. The lights go out. Marriages and celebrations stop. Merchants close down their shops. It's over over. And all the blood of the saints whose lives Babylon snuffed out will be avenged once and for all. 
In fact, you look at the very last line of chapter 18, very last line of chapter 18, not just the blood of the saints, but the blood of all people who were spilled, the blood of everyone, from the blood of every person enslaved, the blood of every person who was murdered, to the blood of, of 80 million innocent, unborn children aborted before ever getting the chance to breathe. God brings justice to it all by destroying the system that propagated it, by destroying Babylon. Yeah. If you're pro-choice, you're pro-Babylon, by the way. So the choice before us is clear, okay? Stay in Babylon. Continue prostituting yourself to her so that like everybody else, you can have wealth and power. Or, as chapter 18, verse 4 says, come out of her. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sin. Come out of her. Now, there's one thing we need to see as we close this morning. And worship team, you can come. Thank you, guys. There's one thing we need to see before we close this morning, and that's this. There's another woman here at the end of Revelation. So we have Babylon, as gaudy as she is, right? But there's another woman, and we need to see her because she's beautiful. And um, Revelation chapter 17, look at verse 1. Jesus said, you know, he said, come, I'm going to show you the punishment of the great prostitute. We saw that. And then chapter 21, verse 2. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Oh, there's another woman called the new Jerusalem. Even the location from where John sees these two women tells you that they're different. When seeing Babylon, chapter 17, verse 3, John says, an angel carried me away into the wilderness. That's where he sees Babylon. Chapter 21, verse 10, John was carried away in the spirit to a mountain, great and high. And from that great vantage point, he's able to see the new Jerusalem. So right away, you see there's something different about these two women. But much more than that, the best I can do is just give you these slides. I've got these three slides, so they, they go pretty quick. I couldn't fit it all in one slide. But just to see the contrast between these two women, Babylon and the New Jerusalem. Babylon is portrayed as a prostitute. New Jerusalem's a chaste bride, the wife of the Lamb. Babylon gains her power, her splendor, by exploiting her empire. The New Jerusalem, her splendor comes from the glory of God. The, the Babylon, she deceives and she corrupts the nations. But the New Jerusalem, the nations walk by her light. She leads them. Uh, the, in Babylon, she rules over the kings of the earth. But in the New Jerusalem, the kings actually bring their splendor to her willingly. They acknowledge her greatness. Next slide. In Babylon, her luxurious wealth comes from exploiting. In New Jerusalem, her wealth, the nations bring their glory to her as a gift. <laughs> she doesn't exploit anything. It's just given to her. Uh, in Babylon, uncleanness, abominations, lies, they're common. In the New Jerusalem, nothing impure will ever enter her. In, in Babylon, it's the maddening wine that makes nations drunk. But in the New Jerusalem, it's the water of life, the tree of life that heals the nations. 
In, in Babylon, it's blood and slaughter. In, in the New Jerusalem, it's life and healing. In, in Babylon, God's people are, are called to come out of her. But in the New Jerusalem, God's people are invited to enter in. Enter in. You, the, the difference between these two is night and day. God's people. Listen, friends, God's people are called to come out of Babylon to enter the New Jerusalem. And the choice is clear. As in the day of the Exodus, getting Israel out of Egypt, that was the easy part. Getting Egypt out of Israel proved a lot more difficult. And listen, with the snap of his finger, with the trumpet call, Jesus can get you out of this world. That's the easy part. Getting the world out of you, that's much more difficult. And that requires your partnership. That requires your agreement. That requires you bowing your knee before Jesus saying, I recognize that the world has got, that Babylon has got its, its tentacles around my heart. I recognize that, God, and, I, and I'm asking you, Lord, first I'm repenting from it, and I'm asking you, Lord, to come and to, to just help me unravel it, untangle it, and get it out because I don't want it there. I want to be all yours. I want to be all in, see? So today... God is exposing that Babylon, that whole world system, as a, as a great whore. Does it repulse you? Good. It's supposed to. We're supposed to repent from all the ways in which we've hopped into bed with the world. We're supposed to. We're supposed to begin to get disgusted at the things that we watch the things that we listen to, the things that we participate in. I pray that God's Spirit begins to speak to us, that we, we find ourselves doing something, saying something, participating in something, and we just feel the conviction of the Spirit going, whoa, that, that is not you. That is not you, man. Get, come out. Get out of that. Do you hear that? God is asking us to come out of her. And listen, let me say this real quick as we close. If you're one who has participated in uh, dark and twisted and sexual behavior, there's no shame here. There's no hatred here. Please don't hear that. But I think you, more than anyone, can probably testify to why John's image is so powerful. You know firsthand the destruction, the pain, the brokenness, of prostituting yourself to the world. You, if any of us, could stand up and say, yes, come away. Get out. Because it is nothing but trouble. It's nothing but pain. It's nothing but heartache. And it will be destroyed, and you will be destroyed if you continue in it. Come out of her. See? And this is the message for us today. Be holy. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.